it's been a joy to be in the book of Zechariah, the Old Testament prophet, in this season as we anticipate Christmas. Maybe not the first book our minds go to in order to reflect on or anticipate the incarnation, the coming of God in flesh to dwell with man. And yet this book has been so fitting, perfectly highlighting many themes of the season. This Sunday is no different as we hear from and dwell in the 10th chapter of Zechariah together. In Zechariah's day, the 6th century BC, or about 500 plus years before the birth of Christ, these were some dark days for God's people. Just experiencing captivity and exile to foreign lands at the hand of foreign leaders, rulers. This was a people in need of hope, and Zechariah provides hope. Now, the hope of God's people in this post-exilic period, as we've seen, was for God to gather together all of his people back in the holy city of Jerusalem, where his glory would reside. Though the fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecies would not come maybe in the way that his original hearers might have anticipated. And for us, it cannot be missed this Advent season. We centrally see the fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecies here in the first and yet-to-be-seen second Advent of Christ. This commentator, Anthony Pedersen, recaps and sets the stage for us. While the book of Zechariah anticipates the return of the glory to the rebuilt Jerusalem, there is no indication in the post-exilic period in the writings that the glory ever did return to the temple. Yet the book of Zechariah preserved this hope. It is against this background that the words of John, we have seen his glory ring so richly. God has returned to his people and the word became flesh. The one who tabernacled among his people, the one in whom God's grace and truth come together, the one who made God known. Patterson continues, Jesus was the one who was glorified in the death and resurrection. Similarly, Paul says that in Christ we behold the glory of the Lord. In this way, Jesus fulfills Zechariah's hope for God's return to his people. This is the refrain as we finish these last chapters in Zechariah. Jesus fulfills Zechariah's hopes for God's return to his people. This morning we'll see again the God-man, Jesus, and a glimpse of God's return to his people. A return that at times felt hopeless to Zechariah's contemporaries. And maybe there are some here today who have similar doubts, discouragements, feelings of helplessness. As Butterworth notes, we need to see the underlying concern of the prophet Zechariah and realize that the Lord is God who redeems his people from situations where they are helpless in themselves. The hope for God's people in Zechariah in his day, and similar for us today, in some ways, 
was a hope deferred. Maybe even a long shot or improbable, seemingly impossible. But God stepped in. God has come. As we remember this season, and he will again. The helpless state of God's post-exilic people was, as we'll see, because they lacked a proper ruler, proper leadership. Chapter 10 here speaks to this need for a ruler and shows us the ruler, continuing on from last week in chapter 9, where we heard of this of our ruler. Rejoice greatly, O daughter Zion. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he. Humble, mounted on a donkey. The prophecy of Zechariah, which has already been fulfilled in Christ's first coming, as we read in the Gospel of Matthew. Though more is to be said on this. The restoration of God's people, here as we'll see both Judah and Israel, comes through this ruler. Though our text significantly uses a different word for ruler. It uses shepherd. The shepherd being a well-known symbol in the ancient Near East for that of a king. So to order the text for this morning, we'll identify three sections. The ruler shepherd of our hearts, verses 1 through 3. The shepherd who secures victory, 3 through 7. And the shepherd who brings redemption, 8 through 12. And I invite you, as as we consider the redemptive love of our long-awaited shepherd king who restores and establishes his kingdom, we have as a playlist in the back of our minds for our message this morning, words from the song that we began with, King of Love, never failing, ruler of my heart, everlasting lover of my soul on the mountain high or in the valley, lo, the king of love my shepherd is. While this text and its primary focus on the need for a ruler and the right ruler, interestingly enough, begins with an invitation, an invitation to ask God for rain. Ask rain from the Lord, verse 1, in the season of the spring rain from the Lord who makes the storm clouds, and he will give them showers of rain to everyone, the vegetation in the field. Now, why is this? Well, the next verse gives more context revealing a central theme, a central struggle of their hearts, of the human heart, that someone or something will rule our hearts. So set up as an alternative here, we read on, verse 2, for the household gods utter nonsense. The diviners see lies, they, they tell false dreams and give empty consolation. If we don't ask God... We're going to ask someone or something. And here, specifically, rain is the object. Though seemingly maybe archaic practices of the past, such things are surprisingly relevant for today. Maybe magic eight balls or, or shrines might be helpful ideas to, compact, to capture at least an element 
of the teraphim or here the household gods we see in verse 2? Well, the objects themselves aren't as important as the practice they represent. These idols were sought after to help to see the future. As, as it seems, one, one main reason was to determine the weather for their work, for farming. When best to plow, sow, and harvest. They were inherently trusted and obeyed both in their counsel and consolation. Implicated with such important matters for their lives, these, these idols, they shaped their loves. Though God's law handed down through Moses prohibited such practices. So rather than the God of, of creation, the maker of heaven and earth, they trusted idols made by man's hand and superstitions. So what is the correction that Zechariah gives here? Ask the Lord, ruler of heaven and earth. Ask the Lord, the one who makes the storm clouds for rain and who gives the growth to the crops. He will give rain and give growth to the vegetation. He will bring about harvest. He provides. This is who he is as the psalmist meditates on such things. All creatures look to you, God, to give them their food at the proper time. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are satisfied with the good things. When you hide your face, they're terrified. When you take away their breath, they die and return to the dust. When you send your spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the ground. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his good works. This is what they needed to remember, who the true and living God is. But instead, turning to household little g gods who utter nonsense, as Zechariah says, and diviners who see lies. Again, there's so much for us here today. We see the relatable fallen human condition where our hearts turn from trusting in our Creator with gratitude as He sustains and provides. And we turn to self-reliance, to superstitions, to ingratitude. In modernity, in, in many ways, it seems that we have simply moved past acknowledging as creatures God as creator and sustainer of his creation. God's word for us today reminds us to seek him in such a way. Ask God in the present today for your needs. No prayer or request is, is too mundane or insignificant. Asking for our daily bread, provision, is a great place to start. I was reminded this week of some of the prayers from Thomas Cranmer's uh, Book of Common Prayers, which was published in 1662. And one is a prayer asking for rain. The prayer goes, O oh God, 
Heavenly Father, who by the Son, Jesus Christ, has promised to all those who seek thy kingdom and thy righteousness thereof all things necessary to their bodily sustenance. Send us. We beseech thee, implore urgently, fervently, in this our necessity, such moderate rain and showers that we may receive the fruits of the earth to our comfort and to thy honor. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Do we pray like this today? He loves such prayers from his children. So, the result of God's people turning to household gods, diviners, we might say magic eight balls, palm readers, they wandered. And they were afflicted without direction, without guidance, without leadership, without a shepherd. Verse 2, therefore the people wander like sheep. They are afflicted for lack of a shepherd. Again, shepherds are well-known imagery for rulers and kings. And more specifically, in the immediate context of this passage, the house of Judah, Israel, did not have a king. So the post-exilic people of God did not have a king and were afflicted for lack of a shepherd. So the question begged, when will this promised king come? Now notice the very next verse, verse 3. My anger is hot against the shepherds, and I will punish the leaders, for the Lord of hosts cares for his house, his flock, the house of Judah. But didn't we just hear that? They were afflicted for lack of a shepherd. And now in the very next verse, it says the Lord's anger is hot against the shepherds. How does that work? They lack a shepherd, but have shepherds? Yes. In verse 2, the shepherd refers to the rightful ruler of Israel, God's people. With the destruction of the temple in the city of Jerusalem, that was being rebuilt, there was no king on the throne of Judah. They had prophets and priests. Zerubbabel served as governor around this time, but there was no king over Israel, rightfully, faithfully shepherding God's people. This was a longing yet to be fulfilled. The shepherds then, referred to in verse 3, are the foreign kings who ruled over them and led them astray. Again, verse 3, my anger is hot against the shepherds, and I will punish the leaders, for the Lord of hosts cares for his flock, the house of Judah, and will make them like his majestic steed in battle. We heard just this past week passages of judgment, God's judgment on Israel's enemies and their foreign kings. His anger and judgment against these foreign shepherds, as we heard last week, is because he cares for his flock. Out of love for his people comes the judgment. So here we see God's anger against shepherds, oppressive foreign leaders whom he will punish. But they weren't the only ones, only shepherds who led their sheep astray. 
about 80 years before this, right around the judgment brought on Judah with the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem at the hand of the Babylonians. Through the prophet Ezekiel, God expressed similarly anger against the shepherds of Israel itself. It's an important text for all leaders, shepherds, to hear this sobering passage that runs parallel to ours this morning. From Ezekiel 34, let me read from that for us. Listen. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd. And when they were scattered, they became food for all the wild animals. My sheep wandered all over the mountains and on every hill. They were scattered over the whole earth, and no one searched or looked for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, because my flock lacks a shepherd, and no one has been, and has been plundered and has become food for all the wild animals. And because my shepherds do not search for my flock, but cared for themselves rather than my flock. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says. I am against the shepherds and will hold them accountable for my flock. I will remove them from tending the flock so that the shepherds can no longer feed themselves. I will rescue my flock from their mouths. After devastating failure of its leaders, who then will shepherd God's flock? God himself. As this theme of shepherds runs through the whole of the scriptures, it continues to be a term for leadership in the church today. Pastors, elders, are shepherds. And so particularly for us elders at Gospel Life Church, may we hear these words. Our desire is to serve this congregation out of love under the authority of Christ. And to take this opportunity this morning is important to remind us all the calling of shepherds to feed, to lead, to protect, to care for God's flock all out of joy and service under the chief shepherd, Jesus, who will return again and to whom all shepherds must give an account. I encourage you, myself, this week to read, to take some time to read, particularly 1 Peter chapter 5. Since I think it's, it's so relevant for our text today, Zechariah chapter 10, and for our response as Christians today in this present age between the first and the second advent of Christ. So to summarize this first section, these first few verses, Herman J. Austell says, the message is clear, seek God and trust him. He will prosper and deliver his people by failing to heed this admonition. And by trusting in deceitful idols and lying diviners, Israel has fallen on hard times. They wander like sheep without a shepherd, and they've been led astray away from God 
and into suffering and exile. The situation is really a hopeless one. But in verse 3, God steps in. The shepherd who secures victory. Moving into this next section, the focus and imagery used in the preceding verses Proceeding verses is established in the last phrase of verse 3. The Lord of hosts cares for his flock, the house of Judah, and will make them like his majestic steed in battle. The horse is a strong, majestic, fast creature used in battle. And interestingly, last week we saw that the Davidic king to come he would ride in not on a horse, but rather humbly riding on a donkey at his first advent. Here God, Yahweh in verse 3 says that he will strengthen his people, wandering afflicted sheep, specifically the house of Judah, like that of a majestic steed in battle. Later in verse 5, this military metaphor continues. They shall be like mighty men in battle, trampling the foe in the mud of the streets. They shall fight because the Lord is with them, and they shall put to shame the riders on horses. God will strengthen the house of Judah to have victory over all of its enemies. And this is the battle cry of victory. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, symbols of human and military power and strength. But we trust in the name of the Lord, our God. They shall fight because the Lord is with them. We see this beautifully, subtly, throughout Scripture. Notice even the change of pronouns here. Here in verse 5, they, the house of Judah, shall be like mighty men in battle. They shall fight. They shall put to shame the riders on horses. And in the next verse, and throughout the following verses, I, Yahweh, the Lord your God, will strengthen the house of Judah. I will bring them back. I will bring them home. I will make them strong. I and they seemingly seamlessly back and forth for God works in and through his people. It's, it's not a contradiction, but a beautiful tension showing the reality of the depth of truth of creatures living rightly with their creator. So we should, when we are doing our work, when we are doing the work of farming, ask God, to bring the rain and the growth. Or fill in the blank, whatever it is for you. In between verses 3 and 5, the focus centers on the leader of the house of Judah using a series of different metaphors to describe its leadership. Each line begins with, from him, which seems to be from the Lord through the house of Judah. From him shall come the cornerstone. 
From him, the tent peg. From him, the battle bow. From him, every ruler, all of them together. Simply enough, and importantly, used elsewhere in Scripture, this leader will be the cornerstone or the keystone of his people, pictured here as a building. The stone that gives the building its stability, its foundation, its orientation. Similarly, we're invited to contemplate a tent peg, which also provides the support for securing the tent. And it's not a stretch to say that the tabernacle, the tent where God dwelled with Israel in the wilderness, would have been called to mind here as well as the temple in Jerusalem in response to the cornerstone. God's dwelling places. Next, we have the battle bow representing military leadership and strength. This leader will deliver victory. Indeed, this ruler is the ruler of rulers, the king of kings. Now notice, verse 6, we see a new dimension here. With Zechariah being a prophet to Judah, with the house of Judah being the immediate context referred to in verse 3, we are reminded that God will rescue, strengthen, and return all of his people. In its history, Israel had been split up into two kingdoms. The northern kingdom of Israel, the house of Joseph, and the southern kingdom, the house of Judah. And in some ways, it was even more bleak for the house of Joseph being, for a longer time, severely scattered, diminished, and exiled. How could God's promises remain true for them? And yet, God says, I will strengthen the house of Judah and I will save the house of Joseph. God did not forsake them or his covenant. Here's one of those verses that forces us to slow down a bit and just consider its significance. Given all that had happened, we're tempted to ask, how will God still deliver his promises? I will bring them back because I have compassion on them. And they shall be as though I had not rejected them. For I am the Lord their God and I will answer them. That last phrase is covenantal language. Despite both Israel's and Judah's faithless God remains faithful to his covenant promises, for I am the Lord their God and I will answer them. God does not break his word. He does not break his covenants. We see over and over in the Old Testament, whether that's through the historical narratives, the wisdom literature, or the prophets, true to his word, the Lord fights for his lost and helpless people. In these verses, we see the very heart of God, the love of God. God will bring his people back. God will return to all his people because he has compassion on them. This word because, this conjunction gives the reason, the grounds 
for what comes before it. God is acting out of his compassion, out of his love. He is moved to act mercifully towards his people. And we see that God is not simply a God who has big feelings or who talks big talks, but he is the God of action. He acts within history to fulfill all that he promises. Verse 7 goes on to reinforce that God will return to all of his people. He will strengthen both the house of Judah and the house of Joseph. It reads, then, then Ephraim shall become like a mighty warrior, and their hearts shall be glad as with wine. Their children shall see it and be glad. Their hearts shall rejoice in the Lord. Ephraim is just another word for the people of the house of Joseph. Joseph. And they are included in this mighty military metaphor. They are included in the victory which will finally be secured by their ruler, the shepherd king. There's more to say on this today which we will return to as we reach our conclusion. For now, so fittingly, as we turn to the last section, focusing on the redemptive work of the shepherd king, the hearts of his people will rejoice and be glad when they know his salvation. The hope continues to build. The shepherd who brings redemption. In verse 8, the shepherd imagery continues on. I will whistle for them and gather them in, for I have redeemed them. Here God is said to whistle for his people. But just as it's used in Judges 5.16, this whistle is a noise used by shepherds to gather in their sheep. So God is gathering his sheep. In the grounds, the basis, the, the foundation which allows this gathering together again is that of God's redemptive work. For I have redeemed them. The rest of this section focuses on the gathering in of God's people. From the likes of Assyria and Egypt, symbols of strength and captors of Israel and Judah. But make no mistake that at the heart of this, at the heart of the matter and the significance for our hearts is redemption. And this theme of redemption will continue to be developed throughout the rest of Zechariah. As foretold in our last chapter, the king who is to come and now has come Riding on a donkey brings redemption. So we look to him. We look to his crown. But we are fundamentally missing the nature of his crown, the crown of the shepherd king and of his redemption if we miss, as we will see more chapters to come, that the king was first to go to the cross. 
the redemption which allowed the gathering in of God's people and God's return to his people. The fulfillment of their hopes was not brought about by conquest and sword. Rather, redemption was purchased at the cross where the king of Judah shed his own blood, dying in the place of his people. The perfect, sinless shepherd king of Israel came to give his very own life as a ransom for many. And as the song of redemption echoes throughout eternity, as we hear in Revelation, because you were slain and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe, tongue, and nation. You see, the fundamental problem, even in the Old Testament, is not oppressive powers, household miniatures, superstitions. It is the sin in men and women's hearts. The gathering in, the the return from exile means nothing if it is not grounded in redemption, the sacrificial atonement of the shepherd king, which purchased the souls of those who call him king. And this is at the heart of God's covenantal love for his people. The house of Judah, the house of Israel, and even us Gentiles here today. This is the good news, and it is news for us today to receive and to believe. As we heard in our Advent candle lighting, in the reading, to harmonize with that. In this is love. The Apostle Paul, uh, John says, not that we have loved God or Judah or Israel, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation or atoning sacrifice for our sins to appease the wrath rightfully against sin of God. Continuing here briefly then in verse 8, for, for I have redeemed them, and they shall be as many as they were before. Again at this point in their history, after great devastation, disappointment, and literal depletion of numbers, it is easy to ask, how can God fulfill all of his covenant promises? They shall be as many as before? This reminds us of God's word to Abraham way back when. Where God said, look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said, so shall your offspring be. And importantly, what was Abraham's response? Abraham believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. Though a scattered sheep off in distant lands, Zechariah chapter 10 assures us God will gather up and return all his people from the mighty kingdoms of Egypt and Assyria and make them as numerous as before. 
And where in the text does God lead them? To the land of Gilead and Lebanon, as we see in verse 10. What's the significance here? Well, Gilead was where Moses led the Israelites into the promised land. And Lebanon, the northernmost part of the kingdom. So in this last section on redemption, remembrance is a key theme. We can look back in history and remember and be assured again of God's covenant faithfulness, his love to rekindle our hope, which is our future that's secured by God to dwell with God. Verses 11 and 12 vividly call to mind when God redeemed his people out of slavery in the land of Egypt. Here in verse 11, we are reminded of God delivering his people through the Red Sea, read in Exodus, and the judgment of God on Egypt in turning the Nile to blood. You shall pass through the seas of troubles and strike down the waves of the sea, and all the depths of the Nile shall be dried up. The pride of Assyria shall be laid low, and the scepter of Egypt shall depart. Patterson summarizes here this, this section. The king will be involved in a victory whereby the enemies of God will be judged and his kingdom will be reestablished, reuniting Judah and Ephraim. As God keeps his promises, he has unified and reestablished his kingdom. And we see this clear as day in Jesus' first advent. The time is fulfilled, he said, and the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the gospel. This is a call to all of us, not just the house of Judah or the house of Ephraim, but the nations as well. For when his disciples, after Jesus was crucified on the cross, and after he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, his disciples, similar to Zechariah's contemporaries, asked, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? And how did Jesus respond? It is not for you to know the time or the dates of the Father has sent by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Jesus, in this age, sends us out to share the gospel so that Jesus might reign in the hearts of man everywhere, thus establishing his kingdom on earth until his return. As we conclude here, some, some reflections from the text that God might be encouraging us to respond in. One, one of the questions posed to us in this text this morning is who rules your heart, your soul? As we heard in verse 2 and 3, do we give our trust to some form of household gods who utter nonsense or superstitions who tell false dreams and give empty consolation or oppressive rulers? Where do our hearts turn? 
our hearts are prone to fall captive to all of these things. No matter what, someone or something will rule your heart. And as a follow-up question, does the ruler of your heart love you? Will your ruler die for you? The king of love died for his people. If you're not yet a Christian here, ask God today to rule your heart so that you might know the depth of his love and compassion for you personally. Secondly, as we saw in our text, metaphor, the imagery of, of uh, military and battle. The battle of today is in the heart of man. As the Apostle Paul exhorts, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and authorities and powers of this dark world and against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. The battle today that rages on is not fought with literal sword and shield, but with the word of God and prayer. It is a battle unseen, a spiritual battle raging on for man's hearts. Elsewhere, as Paul says, for though we walk in flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but of, have divine power to destroy strongholds, strongholds of sin in the heart of man. The only way to be useful in this battle is to surrender to King Jesus by knowing, believing, and living as though the battle is already won by Jesus' death and resurrection. So in our daily living, walking as Christians today, recall the words of Zechariah back in chapter 4. This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, to Gospel Life Church, not by power, not by might, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Lastly, redemption, restoration is only found in the king shepherd. As we hear in the gospel account of Matthew, and Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And Jesus gathered in his disciples and instructed them to then be sent out and to go Go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the leper, cast out demons. And he says to them, to all, I am the good shepherd. I lay down my life for my sheep. Listen to my voice. There shall be one flock and one good 
shepherd. Let us pray. Gracious God, you are mighty, true, compassionate, merciful. Heavenly Father, we thank you for redeeming your people through the perfect sacrifice and atoning death of your Son. Help us to know the joy of salvation in your name, the Good Shepherd. Forgive us when we turn to trust in created things which in the end only give us false dreams and empty consolation. Rather, may Christ and Christ alone rule and reign in our hearts today and always. And may we hear your voice today, our shepherd, trusting in your guidance as the lover of our souls. In Jesus' precious name we pray, amen.